0: everybody needs money that's why they call it money the best thing.
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill and I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you as always. Hey, good hey. to see you, Chris. <laughs> Wall Street Money Never Sleeps opens nationwide this weekend. Coming up, we'll talk with film critic Nell Minnow and get her thoughts on how Gordon Gecko is holding up. We'll give you the latest on Blockbuster, Netflix, Microsoft, and more. Plus an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. Guys, some of the headlines this week. Durable goods orders in August increased, but only if you don't count transportation. Sales of new homes had their second worst month on record in August. Earlier in the week, Warren Buffett said, contrary to what some economists have said, we actually are still in a recession. And Congress passed legislation that provides new tax breaks to small businesses, increases the SBA lending limits, and provides banks with $30 billion in new capital to increase lending. President Obama expected Whoa. to sign the bill into law on Monday. Boring, A lot of stuff. boring, there. boring. <laughs> it's the big macro. What do you want? <laughs> Seth Jason, what's your headline?
2: Wow! Well, I'm going to go. St- I can- I'm going to make it more boring. Okay. I'm going to amp up the boring. That durable <laughs> goods report. For some reason, the headlines were and Wall Street was reacted positively. Uh, you have to pretend that there's no transportation to make that durable goods number small look. Part or- oh, small <laughs> part of the economy. Small part of the economy. Yeah, <laughs> things like airplanes and but actually if you if you bother to to download the uh, the PDF from the website from the government website which apparently some of the news writers out there may not bother to do there are a few interesting Parts of the economy that are doing a little better, at least according to this report, versus last month, uh, those being machinery, computers. So, if uh, you know, as always, you need to look at the specifics and sort of forget about uh, the the broader headline. If I can just quickly get to the new homes thing, uh, I pointed this out before. Always worth remembering that the new residential sales numbers and all of the the sales numbers you get from the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. This, the change they talk about month to month is nearly never statistically significant. And what that means is, is this, this month, they say, well, uh, you know, the the number of home sales is virtually unchanged, but the margin of error is plus or minus 16.7%.
3: That's a huge window. <laughs>
4: you drive a truck through that <laughs> yeah. you
2: know, yeah. margin of error. Just keep that in mind when yeah. you hear people talking
1: about this.
3: Oh, but they still have a midpoint. It's like saying I weigh... 180 pounds, plus or minus 20 pounds, or 170 pounds, plus or minus 20 pounds. You look great, by the way. Thank you, thank you. James,
1: what was your headline of the week?
3: Well, you know, Chris, I will just touch on the durable goods also and say that that they are also up 15% over last year, year to date, I believe. So I wouldn't be too worried about that either. But I would like to cast a vote for the most insignificant declaration of the week and that ooh, is the, the National Bureau of Economic Research officially declared the recession over as of this past Monday. Uh-huh. So, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to relax and start <laughs> shopping again, start wearing tank tops at work, all those sorts of things. Um, I'm I'm cool, so. Tim Hansen, what was your headline? Well,
4: I am doing battle for the most insignificant thing of the week. I think has got to be this this SBA new loan tax break small business stimulus package. TARP 2, TARP Junior, whatever they're calling it. And the reason for that is that you know the problem for, for small businesses hasn't really been the availability of funding. The problem has been that- um, The availability of customers? The availability <laughs> of customers, exactly. So th- the people who can actually get um, loans from the Small Business Administration, the SBA, they don't know what their customers are going to look like the next year, so they don't want to borrow. And the people who need the money are the businesses that are really struggling, have you know significant cash crunches, and might be going out of business. But nobody can lend them money because you only get money if you, you know, deserve it. Tim, so. Tim, shame on you for ignoring that
2: constituency, which will benefit <laughs> so much from this, which is Voters? which is people who are trying to get reelected. Right, <laughs> look, exactly. Look, look
4: what we did, or look what looks like something we did. So that's 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 the story with that SBA Small Business Administration uh, tax break loan TARP Junior program, and it's just I don't know. It's like Not that hamp loan
3: time. home loan program, like there was big fanfare, but like one guy did it or something. Right, exactly. I mean and then he redefaulted. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a cynical crew we've got here. All right, two interesting announcements from Microsoft this week. First, the company is raising its stock dividend twenty-three percent. Then Microsoft announced a debt offering of more than four and a half billion dollars. James Early, you're a big dividend guy. I I can only guess at which was more noteworthy to you.
3: Yeah, Chris, you know, and and my favorite line is, you know, the the, the problem we're still dealing with with these tech stocks, and we didn't have a great market reaction per se, is tech stock investors don't like dividends, and and dividend investors traditionally don't like tech stocks. That's going to change over time as the investor base shifts and as people realize that tech is not just tech. There's high growth tech, low growth tech, you know, there's all kinds of different, it's not all high growth like it used to be, but it's going to take time for perceptions to change there. Tim?
4: Well, I thought this debt uh, issuance was fascinating. And and the reason for that is because if you look at the details of it, Microsoft borrowed a billion dollars, that's a 10-figure sum, due in three years at an interest rate of 0.875%. That's right, 10 (laughs) figures, three years. Less than one percent. Those are some nice terms. Well, if you look at it, it actually makes them arguably as creditworthy, or slightly more creditworthy, than the U.S. government. <laughs> which, given Microsoft's 30 billion dollar net cash position, maybe isn't that far of a stretch. But you know, if they can continue to borrow money at this rate, I mean, they can repurchase shares. They can up their dividend. It's a pretty good deal for them. Seth, Microsoft's
2: return on equity and return on capital are enormous. So the the only the only problem you could maybe find with this is you could actually argue, I suppose, if you wanted that they should have borrowed more money yep. because at these rates, they're, they're pretty much getting money for free. They, they borrowed 30-year money for something, what was it, 4% or yep. something ridiculous? And uh, this just shows you how scared uh, investors are out there that, that some of them are, are pretty much committing themselves to possibly a negative real return as long as the person providing that return or the entity providing that return is Microsoft. James?
3: But, you know, uh, for the most part, the ROE and ROIC numbers are going to be driven by actual capital employed. I mean, you can make an argument that if there's any company that, that already has enough cash, $30 billion, on a balance sheet, yeah. is Microsoft, what are they going to do with it? It's like the, the crazy neighbor who's stockpiling toilet paper, you know, up to the wazoo. It's just... They can't make acquisitions. They're, they're a little bit too big. Or at least well, they'll big buy all of
2: Facebook because it's worth so much. It's worth a lot of are money. Are we out. going to talk yeah, about yeah. that?
4: I, we, we will definitely <laughs> get that. These to things Facebook. are not arm-related. That's true. But I do want to note that James just compared the dollar to toilet
1: paper. Which <laughs> 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 Moving on. In a poll conducted with more than 1,400 Bloomberg subscribers, the U.S. now ranks fourth as the preferred place to invest. Brazil is now the number one market, followed by China and India. Tim Hansen 3 months ago in this poll, the US was number 1. What happened?
4: Well, what happened was that <laughs> that emerging markets started going crazy over the past couple months and and people have been pulling money out of domestic US stocks and putting it into emerging markets. As for what this means for investors for for people listening, I you know, I would consider it a contrary indicator. You know, Brazil, India, and China are not by any means what you would call risk Less nations. L- if let's anything. point out
2: to our listeners who, who may not realize Tim is the guy in the room and the building who <laughs> likes these markets the best of all of us. <laughs> it's true. But he's it, saying, yeah,
4: you got to be crazy. I mean, you know, you got to be crazy to pay high multiples to get into these markets. You know, we like them because they're volatile and you can be opportunistic. But right now, frankly, when we're looking for emerging markets exposure, we're finding better luck with companies like Walmart and Coca-Cola, domestic U.S. stocks that are cheap and playing in these markets rather than in the markets directly where people seem overjoyed to just hand their money off to some Brazil. Company, and who knows
3: what's going to happen. And, and what's even worse, the U.S. may now be the fourth best place to invest, but Denny's was number five. <laughs> <laughs> now, here, here's the deal though this poll was. Done three months ago, also, and, and back then the U.S. was was still first place. So any poll that moves around that much, I have to be a little suspect. So, what's interesting about this to me is that it, it, I mean it just shows that
2: people fads are definitely out there. We talk about it. We say you want to bet on the opposite side of the fad. If you think about it, j- if you step away from where the money is going and where the hot money has been, you consider the excuses or the 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 criticism of the U.S. is that oh, with this anti-business administration, uh, you know, the U.S. there's just too. Much much uncertainty here. Well, you know, what, I don't think we're that anti-business here. But even if you say we, are, even if you say the Obama administration is somewhat anti-business, the the unknowns in a place like Brazil or China or India. Are, are much, much greater than they are here.
4: Well, incredibly, uh, Petrobras, which is the Brazilian state-run oil company, just completed a, the largest offering in history of more than $60 billion, and the reports say that there was actually demand for $140 billion worth of shares. Wow. Now, the, and thing the reason re- they did that? Well, the reason they did that <laughs> is because a couple months ago, or, or last year, they found all this oil, and they were supposed to have the rights to develop it, and the Brazilian government said, whoa, 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 we're going to change the rules. We now want you to compensate us for some of that oil. So they had to go go do this offering, um, why there would be so much demand in, in, a, in a market where they can change the rules like that, it's just it, it's a little bit ironic.
3: When the government ownership went from 40% to yeah. 48%.
4: And the government actually took advantage of this offering to increase their stakes. So if you're an outside Brazilian shareholder of Petrobras, I'm not sure you should feel so comfortable.
1: Regardless of the order, uh, are there countries in your top four? that would you know replace US Brazil India China are there other markets out there that you look at that you would rank you know in the, in the top 4 ahead of those well you know one of the markets
4: that i think people aren't looking at that they should be looking harder at and it's a very risky market so i'm not sure it should really be top 4 but are some of the sub saharan african countries and and the reason for that is that they've got a lot of natural benefits going for them including you know the resources that you see in latin america the farmland that's becoming very valuable around the world but they're really suffering from uh, governance issues generally speaking so if you can, But if you can uh, buy a basket of those, um, we, I think that's sort of an interesting opportunity because, you know, as we all know, based on this Bloomberg survey, people with Bloomberg terminals are looking hard at India, China, and Brazil. Where they're not looking is Africa, and that makes sort of an opportunity for, for the
1: investors. Coming up, Forbes magazine published their annual list of the 400 wealthiest Americans. None of us made the list, but one name in the top 50 caught our attention. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. <laughs> Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. You can follow the show on Twitter at Money, all one word, and as usual, drop us an email. We want to hear from you, radio at fool.com. Chris Hill here in the studio with Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hansen as we dig into some of the companies making headlines this week. The exact date for General Motors' IPO hasn't been set, but CNBC is reporting that GM is looking to set a low share price with the public offering of its stock. So, is to attract individual investors. James Early, you're our resident gearhead. Is this a good move? Well, you know, Chris, there's only one problem, and it's still GM. <laughs> um, you know, for background
3: here quickly, the U.S. gave GM $50 billion in exchange for a 61% stake in the company about you know, a year and a half ago. UAW and Canadian governments also got shares. Um, yeah. And the bondholders got. Exactly. Yeah, Jim um, <laughs> GM has paid back five billion to the, about five billion to the U.S. government, but but apparently GM would need a market value of sixty seven billion for taxpayers to break even. And you know that seems like a lot here. Um, I think GM is still being run by and for the unions. I, I just don't see it as a good investment.
1: Anyone else see this as a good investment, Seth? Uh,
3: I have a hard time seeing it as a good investment.
2: And what I think is, uh, how can I put this mildly, despicable. <laughs> Is the way they're trying to, you know, make a, they have to split the shares to get them to a low enough price so that they is essentially try to sell them to people who don't know enough to know that a low price on a share, in other words, yeah. 10 bucks, 20 bucks, doesn't really matter. It's the earnings power you get for what you pay that matters. So if you pay 120 bucks for more earnings power, you're doing just, you're doing just fine. So if this is the game they're playing, then I think the U.S. government is sort of, Triple dipping, or it's a triple insult to the American people.
4: Tim, a GM has said uh, explicitly that they want a broad retail investor base, and you know th- that would mean that they don't think they can get an institutional investor base because generally speaking most companies prefer institutional investor bases because they're more stable so you know this is just one of those things where i think gm is trying to pull on tug on the heartstrings of the patriotic american and get them to buy shares of this company but uh, it's a losing proposition
2: there's an old saying that says if you walk into the poker game and you don't know who which one at the table is the patsy you're the patsy actually the government is telling you ahead of time now ahead of time <laughs> that you are the patsy <laughs> if you buy the gm shares that's
1: rare on Thursday, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. For those who like business news with a healthy dose of irony, Thursday was also the day that shares of Netflix hit an all-time high of more than $162 a share. Uh, Seth, uh, I know that um, you're, you're not bemoaning uh, the the bankruptcy and potentially the death of Blockbuster. but so
3: uh, sad to have to get out of traffic to drop those <laughs> movies off at Blockbuster. I made it a 20% portfolio allocation, too. <laughs>
1: Uh, What do you think is is the threat to Netflix now, or or have they vanquished all comers?
3: I think the
2: threat to Netflix may ironically be Netflix. I still don't know how the online movie delivery business scales, because uh, for folks who are uh, not uh, interested in the... The goofy parts of internet delivery, it's not like broadcast where you send out one stream and it costs the same whether 10 people listen or 10 million. It costs more, it costs a certain amount of money per per listener or per viewer. I use it all the time, but I'm not sure Netflix makes a lot of money doing things that way and that's the way uh, direction things are headed. So I, 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 I have no idea why Netflix shares are as pricey as they are,
1: but I know exactly why Blockbuster went bankrupt. Is there another blockbuster out there? Is a company like GameStop with a lot of bricks and mortar stores? Like, are they? If you're at GameStop or you're a GameStop shareholder, are you looking at this and just thinking? (laughs) GameStop is still
2: okay because people buying games uh, still want you know they want the disc and online delivery of games. Games are pretty huge now; they take up gigabytes and gigabytes, and it takes a while to, to download that. So I think they're okay for a while.
1: The Wall Street Journal reported this week that while the Nasdaq Composite Index has been relatively flat this year. There's been one area that's been on the rise. That's closely held web startup companies. These escalating valuations can be seen in the secondary market, where investors can buy and sell shares of private companies like Facebook and Blippy. Yes, Tim Hansen, blippy. Uh, I, I, it just seems like this is dot bomb era all over again with these some of these valuations.
4: I mean, you look at it, and it seems like the 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 mantra here is the less I know about a company, the more it's worth to me. <laughs> I mean, it's, I was looking through the survey of results and they were saying Facebook were somewhere between twenty and thirty billion, Twitter, one billion. Blippy 50 million. I don't even know what
1: Blippy is. Um oh you're going to know. but It's, gonna but be it's huge. worth 50 it, million. I think
2: Blippy's like Yelp. Yeah. Isn't it? I don't. It's a re, or every other site isn't a review site? I
1: think it's a review site,
4: yeah. So oh. it's I
2: like every other internet site pretty okay.
4: much. Okay. Well that that'll, that I'm sure that'll serve them well over the long time. But you know this this relates back to the Microsoft story we were talking about earlier in the day where these big tech companies can get money very cheap. And what that means is that I think people are speculating that companies like Microsoft are going to go out and start picking up things like Flippy, whatever it does, uh, for the purposes of trying to buy growth, and so I think that these people in the secondary market are trying to play the flip.
1: Well, speaking of Facebook, Forbes magazine came out with their annual list of the 400 wealthiest Americans. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Larry Ellison were the top three. But checking in at uh, number 35, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook himself. Uh, guys for the sake of context Rupert Murdoch was number 38 and Steve Jobs was number 42 so Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook ranked higher in terms of his personal net worth maybe Blippi's not so bad after all (laughs) Uh, I mean what do we think of this it's crazy. Does he have
2: any cash to spend, or does he just have a pocket full of Facebook shares that don't trade anywhere? Because if, if that's what he's got, and I'm pretty sure that's what he's got, uh, he you got to figure out a way to sell him for cash now before everybody figures out that Facebook cannot be monetized uh, as well as some might hope.
4: Well, his PR people are spinning it as he lives modestly with his girlfriend in a house he rents, or something like that. In I other words, he has no cash. He has no cash. <laughs> he he exactly. holds yeah, yeah. magical <laughs> Facebook shares <laughs> that are ostensibly worth twenty to thirty billion, or the company is worth twenty to thirty billion, and he's worth. Whatever he owns of that, it, I mean, it's crazy.
2: If people think we're just making this up for a laugh, we're not. The guy who, who runs Tesla, who started Tesla, who was the guy who ran PayPal and sold PayPal, is widely known, you know, Playboy Mansion, really rich guy, Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Until the Tesla IPO went through, there was there were newspaper stories about how he was borrowing money from friends because I mean, he had no cash, so he's one of the richest people in the country, but on no paper. actual money yeah. on paper. So that that just shouldn't count.
1: Uh Don't you think uh, Rupert Murdoch agrees with that? By the way, that
2: should not count. (laughs) Well, Steve Jobs. I mean, Steve Jobs. Most of his wealth is tied up in Disney stock,
1: but you know what? You can actually sell. You can go out and
2: sell Disney stock anytime you want.
1: Uh, I think it's also worth noting that four people in the top ten have the last name Walton. So, if there's any doubt about the value creation that uh, Sam Walton has, Uh, do they uh, still
2: live in Missouri? Because the cost of living there is nothing. They do
4: okay. The Walton family. Yeah. yeah. The Mars family, too, that famously reclusive Virginia clan, who you know, the M&Ms and chocolate pet food. I mean, it's funny. You look at the list of all these wealthy people and, you know, there's obviously some tech people and there's Mm -hmm. obviously some, you know, hedge fund guys like Jim Simons. But by and large, it's a lot of simple, basic businesses. You know, you have the Cook family, which is engineering. You've got the Waltons retailing.
3: Um, It goes on and on. Seems the easy way to, easiest way to be wealthy is just to have wealthy parents. That's right.
1: Yes. The guys will be back later in the show to talk about the stocks that are on their radar. But coming up, Wall Street: Money Never Sleeps opens this weekend, and our favorite film critic Nell Minow stops by to share her review. Stick around. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, the much-anticipated sequel to the original Wall Street, opens nationwide this weekend. So we figured it was as good a time as any to bring in our old friend Nell Minow. She's the film critic known as the Movie Mom. She's also the co-founder of the Corporate Library, which reviews and ranks corporate boards of directors. Nell, thanks for being here.
0: I'm glad to be back.
1: So uh, before we get to the movie... Um, there's a little something from the world of corporate governance uh, that's that's come up since the last time you and I spoke, and that's Elizabeth Warren. She's been named as a special advisor to President Obama. She's helping to set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, first, just what was your reaction when, when she was named to the, this post?
0: I jumped for joy. I couldn't be happier about it. I think uh, you couldn't have a better person. She's exactly right. She knows this industry inside and out. And I think it's fascinating that her background is from studying bankruptcy. She sort of worked her way through backwards to see how people get into financial trouble to understand uh, the instruments that get them there. And so I think that's just the right energy to bring. Uh, I couldn't be more pleased.
1: What did you make of the debate surrounding the announcement? Because when I was reading different columnists and, and that sort of thing, there seemed to be uh, two camps. And on you had one camp that said, oh, the, you know, the president is is going around Congress, this is an end run he's doing, and, and she's going to have too much power. And then there was another camp that said, you know what? Um, she shouldn't be a special advisor. She should be heading up the whole thing.
0: I'd love to have her head up the whole thing. I don't know if that's politically tenable, at least at the moment. Uh, it is unclear. I've spoken with people in this nascent agency, you know, waiting to to, uh, bring it all into place, and uh, they don't know what her authority is right now. So there are a lot of important questions to be asked. I don't think that there's going to be a lot of operational activity going on, but I think that the overall policy uh, and substance uh, is what's going to be her job.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool Money. We're talking with Nell Minow from the Corporate Library and also the movie Mom. Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. When we spoke back in May, you said you were bearish on the movie. We, we did a buy, sell, or hold. You said you were bearish on the movie until you saw the trailer, and then you were a hold and, and sort of leaning towards a buy. Now you've seen the movie. Yes, I have. What did you think?
0: I'm sticking with my hold. Uh. But before I get to the movie, I want to just revisit the first one for a second, because I think that's helpful in understanding this one. The first one was 23 years ago, and there's a fascinating interview with the costume designer who worked on both movies in Esquire this month, and she talks about the uh, iconic attire that she created for Gordon Gecko, who was sort of the uber corporate raider of the first movie, and she said that at one point Oliver Stone came to her and said, my friends on Wall Street said nobody dresses like that. She said, this is a movie, this is not a documentary, (laughs) and what's interesting about it is that now they do dress like that. That movie was a leading indicator of how Wall Street was going to see itself, and in a way, I think it did pour gasoline on the fire and was uh, a, a bit of a contributor. It 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 was intended as a cautionary tale, just like Michael Lewis's book, The uh, Liar's Poker, was. And in both cases, instead of being seen as a cautionary tale, it was seen as a guidebook.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those. My roommate in college had a poster on the wall that was the epic "Greed is Good" speech.
0: Oh my gosh! And he would,
1: you know, he had that thing memorized.
0: And I don't know if you saw the movie Boiler Room but at one point the guys in the pump and dump operation all sit down and watch it together and recite all the lines it appears to be a frequent ritual from these guys so yeah that was that was what it, you know it created uh, the, their dreams so how do you as Oliver Stone revisit this thinking that you know you were really putting a stake through the heart of the era and instead um you know you created a monster and I think that is one reason that the second movie has a a level of ambivalence that I found disappointing. Now, I have to give you sort of two reviews very quickly. The first one I'm going to give as a person who deals with the financial markets. I give it a a failing grade there because the characters act in ways that I think real people don't. They do some obviously illegal and obviously foolish things. Uh, One character, for example, wants to get revenge on another, so he spreads a bad rumor about his stock. You know what? That's illegal. (laughs) And it, you also I was going to say
1: don't we have laws about yeah, that? yeah, we do have thing?
0: laws about that, and he 's unaware of them. He learns about them later on That's, there's nobody on wall street that doesn 't understand that from day one, and also uh, you burn your bridges he, he a lot of you know a lot of Wall Street to this day still runs on trust and on who you listen to and who you share secrets with, and all of the people that he said i 'm you know t- totally solid on this um, you know that are never going to deal with him again so Uh, So I thought that that part of it was unrealistic. And I thought that the point of the movie was uh, uh, unclear about whose side it wanted us to be on.
1: Um, You know, when the first movie came out, as you said, 23 years ago, uh, obviously we were living in a very different world in terms of media, you know, no internet, no Twitter, that sort of thing. But I, I think that that film had an enormous impact in part because it brought many people, myself included, into a world that we didn't really know much or anything about. Um, Now, here it is 23 years later, and oh, by the way, we've just gone through two years of a financial crisis. Do you think the financial crisis helps or hurts a movie like this? Because on the one hand, I could see it helping because it's it's been you know the main topic of conversation for the last couple of years on the other hand I could see people just being sort of sick and tired of it
0: well that's a perfect lead into my second review which is sort of my mainstream regular movie critic review and that is is this movie uh, accessible enough in terms of the financial information to be appealing to a mainstream audience. And I'm not sure that it is. There's a lot of gobbledygook in there, and God knows there's no more gooky gobble than CDOs and subprime derivatives. Uh, but it doesn't really explain the situation in a way that I think is dramatically interesting. And similarly, the character of Gordon Gecko. Uh, He's neither the good guy nor the bad guy in enough of a compelling way to make it work, I think, just as a straight drama. And I think people are a little bit sick of Wall Street right now, of Wall Street, the concept. And they wanted something a little more cathartic than they're going to get from this movie.
1: When you look at big Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, what's been the most positive development in corporate governance since the original Wall Street movie came out more than 20 years ago. And what's been the most negative?
0: I think the most positive has been the uh, raised consciousness in boardrooms and in the shareholder community, and I mean now the institutional shareholder community, that they cannot be asleep at the switch. As I have said to you many times before, when I first came into this business in 1986, O.J. Simpson was on five corporate boards and he was on an audit committee and no one was writing about that or caring about that. Today, that would be a very big red flag and people would be shorting the stock. And so I think now boards are a lot more active. They're a lot more committed. They are a lot more independent. And shareholders, uh, you know, the idea when I first got into this business that we actually got... um, two figures in in support. Uh, we got double digits of over 10% of support from shareholders for a shareholder initiative. That was seismic. And now uh, we've had this year um, a number of directors who have received less than half of the support from the shareholders. Some of the companies have continued to keep them on anyway, but that leads us to proxy access, which I think is a very good development, too. So I think that's been the best thing. In terms of the worst thing, I think that it is the Uh, the perverse incentives. And for me, the incentive compensation was really at the core of the financial meltdown, because everybody in the system managed to find a way to externalize all the downside and to keep all the upside. And that's a recipe for disaster.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool of Money. We're talking with Nell Minow. All right, Nell, before we head to buy, sell, or hold, uh, give me some Oscar buzz. We are officially in Oscar buzz season. Uh, I think it was over a year ago you and I were talking and you were the first person I heard say um, that Monique was going to be winning Best Supporting Actress uh, for her role in Precious. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for another prediction on the on, along those same lines.
0: Well, we're a little early for the Oscar buzz. I can tell you that The Social Network is the hottest film that is coming out this fall uh, from Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher about the origins of Facebook. I think that two films tremendously help each other. The documentary about Facebook called Catfish about a young man who uh, meets... With the person he thinks is the girl of his dreams on Facebook, and impulsively drives out t- across the country to meet her, and finds out that things are not exactly what he thought, um, that you know the two of those together uh, will create a lot of momentum. Uh, so I think I think that is a definite lock for some nominations, and I'll bet that Inception gets uh, a nomination as best screenplay as well.
1: All right, let's wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Let's start with someone whose stock is on the rise as we head into the midterm elections, buy, seller hold the likelihood that Sarah Palin runs for president?
0: There's no question that she's going to run, but I think it will be a short run. Uh, one thing we know about running for president is it really, really ups your pay grade when you are on the election circuit, and I think that's very important. That
1: her. is a good incentive. Mm-hmm. Uh, three members of President Obama's economic team have left, so buy, seller hold the likelihood that Tim Geithner stays on as Treasury Secretary in
0: 2011. Ooh, I'm going to go hold on that. It's really hard to predict. It depends on who comes in. Uh, but he certainly, uh, as I've said before, he has a very, very good communication uh, pipeline with the President, and I think that he's got that job for as long as he wants it.
1: All right, his new movie that he directed, The Town, has gotten some very good reviews. Buy, sell, or hold, the acting career of Ben Affleck.
0: Oh, I think he's a strong buy. Uh, he has made some terrible choices in the past, but he <laughs> has cleaned up his life. And I'm not even going to talk about Julie. I mean, uh, you know, I'm one of the few people who actually saw the movie Surviving Christmas. I barely survived (laughs) Surviving Christmas. And with James Gandolfini, I was just atrocious. So he's made some awful movies. uh, But I think he has pulled his life together. Uh, I think he's a superb director. And I think uh, he chose the right way to come back into acting. He definitely has got a a, a strong career as an actor and a director and screenwriter.
1: Uh, And finally, she recently settled her lawsuit with E-Trade. Whether or not there was actual money involved in that settlement, uh, I'm not sure. Buy, sell, or hold the acting career of Lindsay Lohan. Wow,
0: I think she's on the pink sheets. I don't think there's any (laughs) trading going on there for her.
1: Wow, that's, that. yeah. I mean, I think if you're on the pink sheets like that, uh, I think it's it's time to just, you know, delist the stock, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Nell Minow, the movie mom and co-founder of the Corporate Library. Thanks so much for being here.
0: My pleasure. (laughs)
1: Michael Douglas won an Oscar for his portrayal of Gordon Gecko, But did you know he wasn't even Oliver Stone's first choice to play the role? Coming up, a Wall Street quiz and a few stocks on our radar. Don't go away. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
5: I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my
1: pajamas. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and back in the studio with me are a trio of senior analysts, Seth Jason, James Early, and Tim Hanton. All right, guys, as we, as we talked about earlier, uh, the sequel to Wall Street opens this weekend. Uh, Michael Douglas reprising his role as Gordon Gecko. He won an Oscar for Best Actor. Uh, Steve Broido, our man behind the glass, has got a little Wall Street quiz for us. Steve, what do you got?
5: All right, question number one, guys. Wall Street, the movie, came out back in 1987, and Michael Douglas was not Oliver Stone's first choice to play the role of Gordon Gekko. In fact, Douglas was Stone's third choice. I'm going to give you three choices. I want to know who was not offered the role of Gordon Gekko. Again, who was not offered the role of Gordon Gekko? Was it A, Harrison Ford, B, Richard Gere, or C, Warren Beatty?
1: Tim, what do you think?
5: A, Harrison Ford.
1: A. Harrison Ford also. Ford, I, I'm I'm going Warren Beatty.
5: Gentlemen, congratulations! It was indeed Harrison Ford. He was not offered the role. He's of Gordon too Gekko. many good guys.
4: Too young.
1: Too young.
5: Too
4: young.
1: Okay, twenty years. Type. I can't believe it was 1987. Against type. All right, Steve. What's next?
5: Question number two. Greed is good. It's one of the most quoted lines from the original Wall Street. But Gordon Gecko never actually uttered the phrase "greed is good." What did he say? Was it a "greedy is always good"? <laughs> was it b "greed, for lack of a better word, is good"? Or was it C, greed can be good?
4: Uh, B, for lack of a better word. I'm gonna
3: say B2. Wow.
1: Seth?
5: Oh, man, I gotta go with B.
1: Yeah, it's def- it's definitely B. Good work, gentlemen. Greed, for lack of a better word. <laughs> It's good. Those are some expensive sound effects we got there, Steve. The
2: amazing thing about that is that, <laughs> that Michael Douglas, hand. I think, says that Wall Street traders who he runs into will come up with, oh, you know it's so awesome, and, and he looks at him
5: and he goes, you missed the point of the movie entirely. <laughs> exactly. You Goldman Sachs jerk. Alright, Steve, what else? <laughs> Alright, our final question. To be just like you. The original Wall Street made around $44 million at the U.S. box office, making it the 26th highest grossing film for 1987. I'm going to read you the name of a movie. You tell me whether it Made more or less than Wall Street. Okay. And again, we're talking domestic box office in 1987. So we'll start with The Princess Bride. Did it make more or less than Wall Street?
1: More. 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 Oh, that's a classic. More.
5: It was indeed less. Oh! It made about 31 million. It became
4: famous later. The world is so unfair.
5: The next film, Ernest Goes to Camp. Did it make <laughs> more or less. Again, Wall Street made 44 million.
4: Ah. Uh. Less on principle,
5: <laughs> more. More because I want it to be. I'm I,
1: less because I want it to be. It is in fact less. Twenty-three oh. million
5: for Ernest goes to camp. All right, America dodges a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne, uh, starring Steve Martin, did it make more or less than the uh, Wall Street came out in nineteen? That's the, the this the is the Cireno Cireno de- de Bergerac. Yeah. This is the
2: trick. This one has to be more because we've forgotten it. I think I <laughs> yeah. saw
4: that in the theater, so I'm going to say more.
5: Wow. Were you old enough to see that in the theaters?
2: Uh, I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs>
3: James, more also.
2: I, I went with more right away, out it, of the box. Yeah, more. It actually made less. Wow. Ah, uh,
3: Broido pulled,
5: was tricking us with the double yeah. switch. Pulled in around $40 million, And our final film, Predator, did it make more or more, less? More. Oh, more. Definitely more. Schwarzenegger, come body. on. Yeah, absolutely. It made more. Predator brought in around, uh, actually, almost $60 million, And uh, for the record, the three highest grossing movies domestically in 1987 were Three Men and a Baby, Ooh. Fatal Attraction, and Beverly Hills Cop 2.
4: Still a good year for Michael Douglas. Good year for Michael yeah. Douglas.
1: A Steve Guttenberg movie. Was the number one grossing movie of he the year? He was big. Tom Selleck was also in that. That's true. That, Ted Danson. Let's, let's, Isn't let's that be fair. all three of them. I think so. All right, guys. Let's go around the table talk about the stocks on our radar. Tim Hanson, we'll start with you.
4: Well, as everyone knows, uh, who's been investing, it's pretty been a pretty dismal decade for stocks. They ended two thousand nine, ended a cal- calendar decade uh, for the first time ever in the red on a total return basis. This has been very poor, bad news for the asset management business. And uh, one of the stocks on my radar is Trow Price Group, which is actually our asset managing friends up I 95 in Baltimore. Um, they've got a, a a nice international business, and I, my hypothesis is that the next 10 years will be kinder to stocks than the last 10, and that will help rejuvenate their asset management or their asset collecting ways. And the ticker? Uh, T R O W on the Nasdaq. TRO TRO Price Group.
1: James Early. Chris, I'm thinking of a greasy
3: cesspool where one can rub elbows with all manner of humanity. Uh, (laughs) In other words, McDonald's, uh, which just (laughs) raised its dividend 11% and has my attention. It now yields about 3%. And much as I don't eat there, I appreciate that that a lot of people do. And it it is a very strong offering, a very strong brand. 36% return on equity and 18% return on capital.
1: I like it. Um, Again, ticker MCD. Once again, I, I have to comment on what I can only assume is just great inner turmoil with you constantly <laughs> just eyeing these stocks All that these are the up of, of the healthy organic life <laughs> that you James, live.
2: On the one hand, they poison the environment and school children. On the other hand, the yield is 6%. What a nice
1: dividend.
4: <laughs>
2: Check out that return on capital. <laughs> McDonald's should also be one of those
4: companies Tim's li- Tim likes, right, because of all its international exposure? It's true. McDonald's is uh, number one in Brazil for, uh, for hamburger sales. They're doing very well there. They've got uh, outlets all over Asia and in and, and Europe as well. It's um, a popular concept with a lot of staying power. And,
3: and I think in Brazil, not to that's a hammer home Chris's point, but I think they, they chop down the rainforest so they can graze cows from oh. McDonald's beef, right? So that that's sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. To fire, that I yeah. don't know. That I don't know. <laughs> I think it is
2: true. Seth Jason. I talked a little at the top of the hour about computers being one of the bright points in that durable goods order report. And so I've got a computer-related stock for you, Logitech, which makes all sorts of peripherals, also uh, fancy remotes and uh kind of been smacked around lately uh, free cash flow yield of about nine point nine point two percent about nine point two percent historically done pretty well has some room for margin expansion has already started that despite the kind of lackluster sales environment and uh you know trading at 15 bucks a share i think you can do worse uh, a lot of international exposure as well logi is the ticker
1: All right. Seth Jason, James Early, Tim Hanson. Guys, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thanks to our special guest, Nell Minow. Also, a reminder about last week's guest, Carl Quintanilla. His new CNBC documentary, Trash Incorporated, The Secret Life of Garbage, airs this coming Wednesday, September 29th at 9 p.m., so check it out. If you missed any part of the show, you can find it at our website, motleyfoolmoney.com. You can also get a copy of our free report, The Motley Fool's Top Stock for 2010. All that and more at MotleyFoolMoney.com. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.